Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you? Well, it's the middle of June. It is. And um, Creator has determined is determined to remind us uh, what that bright sunshine and humidity feels like. But, you know, I felt really grateful yesterday when it was steamy and 94 degrees. I just felt really grateful. Yeah. I'm glad you did. (laughs) Well, I got to thinking, we've all been cooped up for a year and a half. Right. And to actually be outside in the sauna felt a little amazing to me but um i do appreciate my air conditioning yeah i am it has been it has been warm here warmer than i would prefer it but you're right i mean we have had we've had some beautiful days there's not a lot of clouds in the sky which means that the sun is bright and i love that um i have had some unexpected trauma in my family and my life um over this past week and so Uh, the sunshine at least allows me to have some light Mm -hmm. into what has felt um, a little dark over the last couple of days. But how are you feeling? Good. I saw the psychiatrist uh, the other day and um, got uh, a prescription for a breakthrough anxiety medicine. um, Okay. That is a non-benzo pill, so there's no... Um, concern for addiction because, you know, so many of these anxiety medicines, you have to continue to take more and more and more to combat the anxiety. And the concern is the way the brain works and the way the neuromaps are is that um, it needs more and that's how addiction happens. So I feel really grateful. I mean, we should do a whole uh, episode on like queer health um, and yes. healthcare for people of color, but it's all power access and privilege being right. at Vanderbilt. You know, um, I'm on a grant that pays for most all of my meds because my insurance, even though I get it from the marketplace, uh, doesn't pay for shit. Right. And my medicine, you know, I take... I take a medicine every night uh, that is $1,400 for 30 pills. Yeah. Now, who has? That's a, that's a mortgage payment. I know. It's ridiculous. It's, it is um, healthcare in and of itself it is a racket. And we, uh, we were optimistic that the ACA was going to help cure or at least move the needle a little on um, access for folks that that need need um, health care right is everyone right um, it is it is not uh, a benefit it is a right. Um, right and I mean all of our listeners know how we feel about that we don't need to go into those details but right it, it's interesting how once again a system that was established to um, attempt to level up the playing field, attempt to infuse equity into society has been co-opted in a way that has once again made it less equitable than, um, than it was intended to be. Now, is it better than what we had before where there was no access in a marketplace for some people that, don't, that can't get healthcare through their employers? Yes. Um, but those kinds of crumbs... That that we are, you know, scraping off the floor are not enough to get us to what really is equity and and liberation in in this country that is so wealthy and powerful. Right. So I feel really grateful to be on that grant and 
to actually have healthcare providers who are part of uh, the LGBTQ community who understands the complexity of what what is trans healthcare and how testosterone affects mental health, you know? Um, so anyway, so, saw the psychiatrist, uh, got a good report there, and um, and I'm good. Um, I, I'm excited that today is Tuesday because in less than a week, I'm going to be in Chattanooga with you, my dear one. You're going to be here with me. Yeah. In, in my home, drinking my bourbon. Yeah. Sleeping in the guest bedroom, loving on my dog, like all the things that we have missed in this uh during these covid days i'm so thrilled i can't um yeah i can't believe that in less than a week we will we will be together irl yeah i mean the vaccine the vaccine has provided so many opportunities um and and we get to make an announcement next week i know you all i know Listeners, we have been teasing about this for a few weeks now. Next week is the week. Next week is the week that the big announcement for activist theology drops. And we can't wait. You are not going to want to miss that episode. Um, All of your hopes and dreams will come true. I mean, maybe not, but I mean, I'd like to think that, um, you know, that, that once the announcement is made, we'll all be farting glitter and vomiting rainbows and growing unicorn horns on our head. Yes. So I'm super excited about that. And, and, you know, I've been batching it this week. My, my partner is out of town and she's a northerner and is up in Massachusetts with her family and. So I've been batching it with Abra, actually, who is a black queer mover, and she's been staying here so that I could sleep at night because my trauma prevents me from sleeping when I don't share space with people. Um, so Abra and I have been having really good talks over dinner and um, talking about all the things, and so I feel grateful for that. And Great. Um, but I'm really excited about today. Yes, we are. We're really lucky friends. Um, not only do we have an amazing colleague on to talk with us about the work that she's doing in the world, but we are introducing this work on the same day that this project is being unleashed into the world. Um, now, for some of you who were anxiously awaiting this episode to drop on Thursday of this week, you are grumbling under your breath perhaps a little that you are hearing it on Saturday. Well, the reason for that is very intentional. Um, today, we are welcoming uh, Reverend Dr. Nakia Robert, who is um, an academic activist, um, public scholar. Well, I just got chill bumps. I know. Oh. <laughs> I know. Uh, she is a pastor um, in the AME. Pastor extraordinaire. Church. Exactly. And she is launching a brand new project today called Abolitionist Sanctuary. And we're really thrilled that we get to talk to Dr. Robert today and that we get to share with you this amazing news that is Abolitionist Sanctuary. Dr. Robert, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited. Oh, we're the excited ones. We are excited. So I have shared just a very small fragment of your work, um, the world that you are a part of, how you come at us uh, with this conversation. Can you share for our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Let let us know um, where you find yourself in the world and how you have come at this work. Sure. I just want to again thank you, Reverend Anna and Dr. Robin, for this gracious invitation to share with you and your audience about the work of religion and abolition. Um, I come from 
uh, humble beginnings in Harlem, New York, uh, raised to a single black mother at the height of the government's uh, war on drugs, unjust war on drugs. Um, I've seen uh, policing, um, prisons, and surveillance um, directly affect me as well as my family and my community. And so I have a very uh, personal interest investment in uh, this conversation about religion and abolition and ending mass incarceration. Um, and so that, that lens from those lived experiences informs uh, my scholarship and my activism. So I'm located here in California, um, was very involved on the ground as much as I could while also balancing ministry, motherhood, uh, moving across country where there's no family, um, and all the other demands, including uh, completing a PhD program while pregnant, right? And during a pandemic. Um, so, so as much as I could um, at, that, at that moment, I was involved uh, in grassroots organizing, uh, organized a protest here uh, in Pasadena. Uh, we had maybe over 300 people covered by all your major news um, stations and an interfaith community. Uh, and, and and just really protesting against the state, right, and its violence and the ways in which it disproportionately uh, impacts uh, black and brown bodies. Um, so did a lot of organizing uh, there and uh, within my scholarship, uh, I look to merge the theory with praxis, right? Not only in my scholarship, but in my pedagogy as well. So that intersection is very important to me. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here because it is, you know, that model is very much aligned with the mission of your podcast. Uh, so thank you for uh, the honor uh, of being here and sharing our work together as scholars and activists. Well, as, as we talk at the, at the sort of parent organization of this podcast, the Activist Theology Project, which I know you know a little bit about, um, we believe in an ethics of incojunto. And incojunto is a Spanish phrase and there's no real English equivalent, but it basically means togetherness. And so this sort of ethics of incojunto, this sort of deep radical interconnectedness and this deep radical togetherness is how we actually create life-sustaining and life-affirming systems, which I believe is abolition. And, and you know, uh, Reverend Ann and I are passionate about collective liberation, uh, liberation on a global scale. Um, and and I, I feel curious if if you would share with us a little bit, uh, you know, most of our most of our listeners come from the sort of global majority perspective um, and, and we're intentional about working with a dominant culture because we all got to get free. And I'm wondering if you could help us a little bit. Um, you know, and I, I've shared my story about, you know, leaving my faculty post at Berkeley after the 2016 election, moving home to the South uh, to do scholarship and activism. And you were at ground zero in a place where, um, you know, California prisons are notorious for brutality and, and, just radical mistreatment of, of folks. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, you know, let's back up a few steps. What drives you to, um, to do this kind of scholarship and activism that, that is about weaving together theory and, and praxis? Yeah. Uh, for me, it is, um, it's an embodiment, right? Um, and it, it's a living practice. So um, as an African-American woman who's informed by uh, living at the margins or uh, what Katie, womanist ethicist Katie Geneva Cannon would say, uh, living in ethics under oppression, right? Um, I, I bring into theoretical discourses my experience um, and my context and my sociolocation. So um, it is unnatural, it is um, 
it is unnatural and 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 not supportive or not 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 prudent to separate right to bifurcate uh, theory from praxis because that would be some type of schism within my own existential being. Um, so it's very important to me to connect our analyses to uh, real life contexts. So how does our thinking and uh, critical thinking and discourses about liberation, how does that materialize um, in the interior lives and uh, the grassroots struggles of people who are, who are living on the margins and in the trenches of, of oppressive conditions? So um, praxis and theory, activism and theology, it's inseparable for me. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me, um, you know, Marcella Altas-Reed, who was a brilliant thinker, you know, she said, how can we do liberation theology without addressing sex, gender, and sexuality? Like, it's really important to talk about a class analysis relative to theology and ethics, but we all have a body. We got to talk about the body. And, and so that's why I'm super stoked about your work and um, being able to announce uh, your next big thing uh, on our podcast because it is in deep alignment with activist theology. And I mean, I think we should get our hands dirty together. Absolutely. And for many of us, that's not an option, right? Like right. we are in uh you know, as as the black churches say, the miry clay, right? Like we are right. um, at the bottom of the bottom, where where you know, you know, we're just there's no choice but to be stained by the injustice mm. of of empire and um, oppressive structures, right? So what mm -hmm. I consider being amongst the dirt, that's not to associate you know, people at the bottom as being anything, you know, uh, close to filth, right? But, but, but what, what stains us is those unjust, those interlocking systems of, of oppression and injustices that you mentioned, right? The racial, mm -hmm. class, and gender inequities. Yeah, I, I, um, I feel really excited because what you're offering people is an opportunity to imagine. And I, and I've said countless times to anybody who will listen, the reason why oppression exists is because we've policed it out of people. We've policed out imagination so much that that's why we have these interlocking systems of oppression. So I love that we are talking about this um trinity, if you will, of intersection between activism and abolition and the church. And so, you know, both you, Dr. Robert, and myself come at this conversation having served in congregational settings where there is not just um an impetus for us to understand um, the work of the one that we are called to serve, which in, in our cases is Jesus, um, but also that um, we are we are knitted into congregations that also at times can be as problematic as the solutions we are seeking um, or as the, the problems that are limiting our capacity to seek the solutions that are needed for liberation and equity in the world. And so... I love that you are naming a narrative that weaves in both the prison industrial complex and the work that we have to do within um, what I will asterisk the traditional Christian church um, in a way that really calls us to account and asks us to really more deeply understand who it is we were called to serve, what it is we are called to be in the world, and then how we are to look at systems of oppression, specifically the prison industrial complex, and, and be a manifestation of the, the God work in the world that, that calls us into it. 
And so saying all of that, you are now launching a, a revolutionary project. Um, you are announcing your brand new project today. Um, and we would love for you to share a little bit about the project. Tell us a little bit about how it came to be and, and why you felt it was important. And, and give us a vision for what it looks like for us to be people, for us to be kingdom people in the work of abolition as it relates to the imprisonment specifically of Black-bodied women. Wow, that, that is a... Uh phenomenal question and wonderful invitation to share and give you and your audience uh, this exclusive announcement. Uh, you all are the first uh, to whom I'm sharing this, this big news with. Um, and so I, I appreciate um, this space. So let me just first backtrack to some of the layers in, which, in, in your question. So, so you're exactly right. Like religion has a very uh, complicated relationship with punishment, right? When we look at the foundations of our prison system, right, the very inception of prisons, it's very much rooted in religious values, even the ways in which we get its architecture. Right. Uh, but also it, the name, right? Penitence and penitentiary uh, are related. The notion of forgiveness, the ways in which you have to be punished and isolated to reflect um, Michel Foucault talks about the 17th century French penitentiaries, right? Um, and, and we see the ways in which he describes in, I believe, the opening of his book, uh, this, ex this public execution of a malefactor um, and the ways in which they had to be severed and their bodies severed and quartered and pulled by uh, horses. Uh, I mean, it's just so graphic. And the marker of that person's forgiveness was how, how much they screamed in agonizing pain, right? And, and, and as uh, Foucault describes this, it reminds me very much of um, the seven last words in, in some Black tradi church traditions, uh, the scripture where God screams out, my God, where Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why, thou, why has thou forsaken me? Um, and it's the notion that one's earthly punishment is an indication of their eternal punishment. Um, so, so there is a lot of um, religious underpinnings to our understanding of punishment. So it seems precarious to talk about religion in constructive ways to contribute to the end of prisons, right? Since it's so foundational in its inception, how can we talk about religion and anything other than perpetuating the logic of punishment? Even when we look in our doctrine, right? We look at sin, we look at sacrifice. Um, it's all religious, atonement theory. It's, it's violent and it's religious. And it's inextricably linked to our understanding of punishment in the carceral state. Um, so, so that is, for me, it, it provides an opportunity to, to help churches rethink their teachings and practices so that we're aware of our complicity and participation in perpetuating punitive logic through our doctrines, through our liturgies, um, and through our practices and, and, and culture, um, and, and it, it allows me to, as you stated, imagine, right, to, to, to bring a community, a community together to imagine alternatives, um, alternatives so that punishment isn't a first response, that it's not a response at all. So I'm excited to share with you uh, the launch of my new organization called Abolitionist Sanctuary. Abolitionist Sanctuary is a bipartisan nonprofit organization um, that empowers Black churches to embody emancipatory theology and abolitionist principles to repair, restore, and rebuild society. So basically, Abolitionist Sanctuary wants to operate at the intersections of religion and abolition. Hmm. Um, to help churches to identify public, public policies and transformative justice strategies 
that centers impoverished Black mothers and other marginalized communities that are system impacted. Um, so the mission of Abolitionist Sanctuary emerges from my personal experience. I've mentioned I grew up to a single Black mother in Harlem, New York, and I watched right. her make questionable choices and decisions and actions to provide for yeah. us. By society standards, those decisions could be considered or are considered deviant, immoral, and criminal. Hmm. For us, it was salvific. It saved right. our lives. It put you know, clothes on our backs, food on the table, a roof over our head. Had she not made the sacrifices she did when her back was against the wall, when she was caught hmm. in a rock in a hard place, not for her own misdoing, but because there was a larger system that impedes access to resources and opportunities to flourish. So she would um, do funny math. She's, she's deceased now, so I don't think the IRS could come for her. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but she would do funny math on a tax return to, uh, to manufacture a higher tax refund to pay bills because of the gender inequity right. and pay gaps, right? Um, and wages. She would do funny, you know, funny type of filling out of forms for rental agreements to mitigate astronomical rent increases as a result of gentrification right. and eminent domain. She would right. forge doctor's notes when there was a school holiday and she couldn't afford backup care mm -hmm. so that she could provide safety for me after school. So, you know, are these things bending the rule? Are they unlawful? Possibly. But are they also a source of moral integrity and salvation for me? Absolutely. Mm. So I want to help churches and society to rethink the ways in which we appraise, particularly poor Black mothers' moral agency against unjust social conditions um, and other and other marginalized groups, and 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 think about how uh, we can create and imagine alternative responses that are not rooted in punishment. Yes, to accountability, um, but also transformative justice. And I could say more, but that's a long-winded response. Wow, what what I mean, I'm just blown away. And feel really grateful that we are colleagues in the same field because what I see is a fierce black woman with a with an imagination far beyond what the academy deserves. And we are both making a way out of no way. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I, I love that um, I affirm both of you in this, in, in the pursuits that you have made to um, identify and separate yourselves in, in beautiful and whole ways um, as it relates to a system that is less than um uh, beneficial or less than uh, uh, kind to humans of color and and bodies that um, don't look like me. I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more, Dr. Robert, on some of the what I know to be very specific and chosen language that you are using around the work of Abolitionist Sanctuary um, as it relates to specifically those of us that know like church talk, that know church language. Um, you said words like emancipatory and uh, principle and communal and compassion uh, and how punitive is another form of 
um, you know, us understanding our role as sinners in, in, in this, in this day and age of, of Christianity. I think I already know the answer, but I'd love for you to expound a little on the chosen language that you are using as you unleash this project into the world. Um, because I think it speaks really intentionally to how we as church folks specifically have to reimagine and thwart the systems that we have always known to be um, the systems that are a part of our world, which relates to the language that we use to name those systems, um, and why why it feels important for you to reclaim some of those words and some of that that vocabulary in this work of restoration. Thank you for that question. Um, you're you're exactly right. So so my work is very much informed by the methods of womanist theological ethics. Um, and I am very much aligned with the ethical practice that's outlined by womanist ethicist Katie Geneva Cannon and looking at the subversiveness of reappraisals and finding value in actions and virtues that society would otherwise deem as deviant and vice. And, um, and so my use of language is important because it is to counter the narrative of dominant society and the ways in which words are used with disparaging values to validate stereotypes that, um, that undermines the humanity and dignity of people at the margins, particularly poor black mothers. So, um, so we've seen what society have done, has done with words like black, right? And the definitions, the negative definitions that's associated with words, uh, with the word black. We've seen what public policy and elected officials have done with phrases like welfare queen, right? And how that's used as uh, codified language to target poor black mothers as lazy and cheaters. Um, and so part of this work is shifting the narrative and um, is, is shifting the narrative to highlight uh, black women's agency aligned with, as aligned with values. So that's part of it, right? But the other part of this is how can we check our languages, our language within church teachings and practices so that it's not rooted in the violence of punishment and retribution and sin and sacrifice, but that it promotes the liberative qualities of a faith that is aligned with freedom and transformative justice. And those values, if you look closely, is very much the same language as abolitionist principles. Right. And those, those words are healing, mm. right? Healing harm, mm. accountability, redistribution, equality. So how do we reclaim that language of a liberative gospel and see that we're not as far as we may think we are from the work of abolition. In fact, mm -hmm. we are very much mirroring the principles of freedom if we were to live the teachings and practice as we ought to do, as Jesus has instructed us to do, to set the captives free, right? Mm. And so, yeah. You know, um, 
one of our shared colleagues, Dr. Nikki Young, um, uh, who is is has been on the podcast, is a friend of the Activist Theology Project, and is my beloved academic partner. And <clears throat> I heard her say many years ago, you know, she does work around black moral excellence, and you know, it's fucking brilliant work. And I heard her say several years ago at Vanderbilt, good is a contested term. And, you know, I'm always interested, you know, as a, as a, as a trans Latinx who is conditionally white until you get to know me, um, you know, trans people are, are not counted as good in, in the same way that black folks, indigenous folks and other people of color are also not counted as good. And when we say good, um, you know, this is a signifier of white most of the time. Well, that's a good neighborhood. That's good money. That's a good supermarket. What, what does that mean? What does that signify? And so th this piece about language is vital if we are going to get free. And, and I, you know, I'm always working not just to be intentional with language, but to be precise with language because the language can do, you know, linguistic harm is a thing. And this country is built on linguistic harm in so many ways. And that linguistic harm is layered in such a way that it is bred into the DNA of our theology and ethics, which is why we need things like womanist theological ethics, Latino equia theology and ethics, queer theological ethics, etc. Because this harm is so layered and language has been weaponized against multiple marginalized bodies. And so I'm excited about this. I mean, I'm just... If I could jump up and down, I would, but I, I got to sit down and, and be connected to the microphone. But I feel so excited um, for this work. Uh, Abolitionist Sanctuary feels feels to me the sort of felt presence of synchronicity with activist theology. Feels like we're dancing together. Um, whatever the kids are doing, that's the dance we're doing. Um because at the end of the day, people matter. And, and we have created a culture of disposability through cr criminalization, through punitive justice, um, which all sort of stems from a sort of liberal and neoliberal agenda of how we think about anthropology. So I am... Super excited for this work. Thrilled that you are announcing on our podcast. Can't wait to support your work. Um, man, Anna, this is a real gift that we got. I know it is. I am, I am, I'm sitting here thinking as I'm listening to both of you speak about this word that we've said a few times already in this episode, which is imagination. And so I'm wondering, Dr. Robert, if you could imagine for us for a moment what kinds of action, what kinds of work you see abolitionist sanctuary doing in the world, what kind of tactic you see um, both the Black church and the, the white church and the Latinx and and and, and our synagogues and our mosques kind of grabbing onto in order to transform our, our communities. What, what is your imagination for what, what abolitionist sanctuary provides and does in, in the work of, of equity and evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so much I could uh, piggyback Dr. Robin on what you said about uh, language, it, it reminded me of um, the notion of discursive violence uh, that we hear uh, Michelle Surtout talk about. Um, I think it's the struggles of everyday life. And I'm, I talk a bit about that 
in an article um, that I wrote mm-hmm. a long time ago as a beginning PhD student. So allow yeah. me grace when you read it, but it's uh, yeah. it's published. It's a lingual politic, power and resistance in sacred, secular, and subaltern narratives in an age of mass incarceration. But um, but but when we think about language, and I'm, I'm I promise I'm going to go straight to your question, um, Reverend Anna. When we think about language, we also have to scrutinize law as language, right? Jurisprudence as language and the way that has served as a source of, of discursive violence for black and brown bodies who wears the letter of the law on our backs, right? Um, as, as a brazen mark. So um, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, and also I should mention that the core values of abolitionist sanctuary are compassion, care, creativity, and courage. And those four things emerge out of uh, impoverished Black mothers' experience, but it's also a counter-narrative of language, uh, particularly punishment, sin, sacrifice. And and also respectability politics is is another thing that we could talk about. Um, Some things that Abolitionist Sanctuary does in some of our programs and, and next steps are to pilot uh, abolitionist sanctuary five churches uh, at five churches um, across the country. Um, and so I am currently in some exciting conversations with uh, church leaders, religious leaders on how to begin that work. Um, and a lot of people have expressed interest. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, but it's also to help you know, once we've established those relationships, and I invite anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're a religious leader or laity identifies as spiritual, affiliated with a church, uh, produce, uh, particularly a church within the historical Black tradition, uh, I invite you to go to my website, and I'll give those details later, uh, to partner with us, right? We, so ideally, we, w- we want to certify these religious communities to become abolitionist sanctuaries, right? So there will be a formal certification process, almost a licensing for churches to become an abolitionist sanctuary. Um, and just a quote, uh, I, am, I envision walking through the doors of the church, peering into an abolitionist sanctuary with murals painted in vivid colors capturing stories of survival and liberative life-giving possibilities that starkly contrast the monochromatic and melancholic hues of prison and death-dealing circumstances in the carceral state. So what does an abolitionist sanctuary look like? It looks vibrant and colorful, right? Uh, Life-generating. The announcements aren't about the fish fry, right? Or about the building fund for the church that never gets built. The announcement is about meet me on the corner at the local park so that we can uh, feed those who are hungry, so that we can mentor youth and give hope and resources and opportunities, right? Um, Our liturgy isn't about um, Jesus dying on the cross and how that's salvific. Right, our liturgy is talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, and I'm invoking uh, uh, womanist uh, Dolores Williams. Right, it's about the life and ministry of Jesus and the work we are called to do uh, to invoke that kingdom of God on earth. Right, a more just and equitable society. Um, and so, 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 what Abolition Sanctuary will do? We will partner with churches to provide trainings, teach-ins, webinars, um, to train religious leaders and laity on on the public policy process at a grassroots level. It's to connect churches to system-impacted mothers and and social movements, right? So those three constituencies will always be at the table. And we'll talk about public policy. There's currently the BREATHE Act is is a big policy that um, the Global Black Lives Matter uh, network is pushing, right? How do we partner with those social movements? Whereas churches are usually, or, or could be, right? Could be insular and very confined to the sanctuary. How do we connect the church to the street? 
uh, by, by informing them and uh, educating them about the public policy process and about ways in which they can implement transformative justice strategies. Maybe that mm. is dedicating a weekly offering to a bailout fund for yes. mothers, right? Yes. So how can we think about kind of short-term strategies that, that are non-reformist reforms, right? Right. Um, to help advocate for impoverished Black mothers and system-impacted communities. Um, it's mm. also to develop a network of experts who have access to resources that we can match to system-impacted individuals so that they have opportunities and trainings to thrive and flourish. So I imagine um, with in each uh, city and state that we uh, develop partnerships and train a church to become an abolitionist sanctuary, that we will also identify community partners, a team of lawyers, doctors, people who will do mock interviews, uh, dress for success. So there's a room of suits, right? Whereas if someone wants to interview, they don't have to worry, what will they wear? They just go to their church and pull something from the closet, right? Um, so, I mean, so it's those things. It's, it's primarily the training for public policy and transformative justice, justice strategies. It's also coalition building, right? So that we could build this network of, of resources to match to people who need it. Um, and it's the certification. How do we uh, train these churches to become, you know, abolitionist sanctuaries so that, so that we know it's a safe space to enter right. because their teachings and practices will be aligned with abolitionist principles. I hope that you'll let us know how folks who follow the Activist Theology Project can be engaged in the work and maybe we could do a collaborative teach-in on the the intersections the relationship between abolitionist sanctuary and activist theology project um and why abolition is social healing work um and and so forth so i'd, I'd be excited to talk about that so in in Luke 4, um, you know, Jesus outlines his mission, <laughs> and it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and, and to free the oppressed. And for years, the marginalization and the oppression of women has been normalized in our society. And that freedom from oppression is what we affectionately in the church know as jubilee. And this feels like a jubilee to me, Dr. Robert. This feels like um, an embodied liberation of jubilee that is coming and is, and is, and is and is being um, afforded for those who have not been prioritized um, in any way, shape, or form in the past. Um, and this, this notion of, um, of proclamation and this notion of kind of listening to the teachings of Jesus and forgiving the the debt of those who have 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 never been um, have never been able to pay not because they not because they were um, uh, not because they owed but because they were overcharged because of the systemic oppression that they that they had faced is one that just really like it just makes me like feel good in my belly like it just gives me this this optimism around jubilee that i feel um just intertwines with the 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 project that you've that you've announced for us today and i'm just really really thrilled for you i'm thrilled for these um these churches and these congregations and these communities that will be able to 
um, birth themselves and find themselves outside of the womb of an insular sanctuary and into the, the life force of an abolitionist sanctuary. And um, I'm just really grateful that you took some time today to share with us this vision, to guide us and let us know what's going on with this work. Um, I want to give you a chance to kind of um, summarize and share one last word with us and, and give us some, some understandings of, of how we um, can be involved with this work. In doing that, I would love for you to share with our listeners um, the website, uh, your social media handles, any of the social media handles that you would like for us to use to connect with you. Our hope is that there will be folks that are interested in your work and that want to get engaged with it and get their hands dirty alongside you. And so what's the best way for our folks to be in touch with you? And um, how are we to, what, what is your final word? What is your benediction for us in this, in this moment as it relates to abolition sanctuary and the possibility that surrounds it? Thank you so much. So my benediction is um, to, to, to remind communities of faith, particularly uh, churches within the Black tradition of our long-rooted history and the work of abolition and to continue that work by invigorating our commitment to connecting our religious values to abolitionist ideals in ways that sets us free, but in, in doing that centers the, the experiences of impoverished Black motherhood and to see the work of abolition as wholly divine. So, and, and, and to restate, for those who would like to partner and help, um, there, are, there are five areas that Abolitionist Sanctuary will operate uh, to, to execute the vision. Uh, one is that we will go into churches and provide an assessment with a proprietary, uh, proprietary um, assessment model that I created, right, through my research, uh, which is a matrix to help churches to assess where they are in their teachings and practices and how they can move uh, to become more aligned with abolitionist ideals. Secondly, we teach courses, uh, we lead trainings, we conduct teach-ins, and we consult churches on how to identify public policy and transformative justice strategies using religious values and abolitionist principles. Third, we want to develop a robust network of strategic partners to match system impacted mothers to the resources and opportunities they need to find sanctuary and to self-actualize. Fourth, we will have a think tank uh, where we invite system-impacted mothers and their families, along with religious leaders and laity, academic scholars, um, and we will uh, and industry experts, movement leaders, and community activists to engage in critical dialogue, so that we can imagine what a society would look like without prisons, policing, and punishment. And how do we repair and restore and rebuild a more just and equitable society? And finally we will offer a licensing program for churches to become a certified abolitionist sanctuary. If any of this is um, aligned with your passion and your commitment to the movement of social justice um, and the humanity of impoverished Black mothers and those who are impacted by the carceral state, I invite you to join as an early partner with Abolitionist Sanctuary. You can find uh, me on Twitter, um, my personal handle is Dr. 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 Nikia S. Roberts. So D-R-N-I-K-I-A-S-R-O-B-E-R-T. Uh, for abolitionists' Twitter handle, it's at abolition, S-N-C-T-R-Y. So that's sanctuary without the vowels. Abolition, S-N-C-T-R-Y. You can also email us at info at abolitionistsanctuary.org. You can call us at 
3089. And you can learn more about the organization and the work um, by visiting my website at www.nikiasroberts.com. Thank you so much for this opportunity and allowing me to give you the exclusive drop on the beginning of the work that we will do with Abolitionist Sanctuary. Mm. This is what a treat, man. What uh, what a treat. This is I can't wait. Friends, please go and sign up and support the work. Um, we are in this together. This is not an us against them competitive marketplace. This is um, activist theology lived out mm -hmm. uh, and in in imaginative ways yes. um, and um, I feel super excited and thrilled that Dr. Robert was with us and um, I can't wait to see your star continue to rise and can't wait to be a partner in the work that you're doing and um, you know if if you have got spare change or a cup of a couple bennies to rub together please um please consider giving to the abolitionist sanctuary. Uh, we don't always ask for money on this podcast, but um, you know, the money is the devil, but we all got it. We all got to have it. Unfortunately, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. And, um, and we all, you know, as scholars and as activists who don't have tenure track positions or job security, it's really important that the community step up and support innovative, imaginative, groundbreaking work, which is what uh, Abolitionist Sanctuary is. So if you are considering trying to find a way to give um, your extra dollars, consider Abolitionist Sanctuary a place to invest your funds because we know that Dr. Robert is doing what Activist Theology Project is doing, which is creating a better world for all of us and not just for some of us. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Robin. Um, as, as is with all of us that are uh, in this not-for-profit um, space, um, capitalism can have the tendency to eat us alive. And yet there are foundations, there are humans, there are independent donors who really help guide this work. Um, and so if you are one of those people, um, please do reach out to Dr. Robert and engage with her on this important work. Friends, we have had just an absolute blast having this conversation today. And we're so thrilled that Dr. Nakia Robert allowed us to um, feature Abolitionist Sanctuary on the day that the world finds out about it. Um, we will be back next week, as promised. And next week, as we've said, Dr. Robin, big announcement. Big announcement. Can't wait. Big announcement, y'all. And we're going to be in person, IRL. I know, I know. We're going to like literally sit across the table from one another and and talk crap to each other instead of <laughs> sitting across the screen yeah. and talking crap to each other. And you know what? If we, if we are uh, recording a little later in the day, which I think we are, it's highly possible, friends, that there might be a glass of bourbon in front of us too. I mean, might I'm be. just saying. I'm just saying. Might be. So. Might be. Please save it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, of course. All right, friends, until next week, we are grateful for you. We thank you for engaging with us in this work. Um, don't forget to follow us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. We will have all of the information about Abolitionist Sanctuary in the show notes. So please check it out there if you didn't get a chance to write anything down. Um, and just um, continue to be with us on this journey. We're grateful for you and we're grateful for your solidarity in this work of getting our hands dirty. Until next week, Dr. Robin. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? 
go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>